Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I'm Kate McGee, Campaign's Associate Editor. And I'm Maisie McCabe, UK Editor. This week, I was excited to interview the writer and performer John Cleese of Monty Python and Forty Towers fame. I want to say I spent my life in front of audiences, writing stuff, making audiences laugh. Why do you think you understand it better than I do? When you're flying, do you send suggestions up to the pilot? You write. (laughs) (laughs) Why do they think they know? And the answer is, it's incomprehensible. He has written a book about creativity and was also a speaker at Nudge Stop a couple of weeks ago. So thanks to Ogilvy and Rory Sutherland for the introduction. We spoke about the importance of play and relaxation to have great ideas, why creativity is generally undervalued in society, and why the people at the top are often the biggest barriers to creative success. First up, last week was the delayed Canline Festival of Creativity. It was, despite initial plans, held remotely and combined work from the last two years because of the hiatus in 2020 due to the pandemic. So Maisie, how did you keep the can spirit alive this year from the streets of London? Well, I basically just carried um, trays full of shots and fireworks to my table <laughs> all week. Um, you know, my toddlers, uh, my three-year-old and a one-year-old were uh, quite bemused that it was slightly dangerous at times but um <laughs> but you know you've got to keep that keep that spirit alive yeah I think I did a similar thing tried to sleep make myself sleep deprived you know run up and down my local high street feeling hot and more 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 <laughs> harassed and then tried to pack too much in out of a misplaced sense of guilt so that was fun um <laughs> the one thing I missed because it makes me laugh every year um is for those of you who haven't been people kind of congregate on the outdoor terrace of the Carlton at night time which is one of the luxury hotels on the Quasette. And you've got the creme de la creme of Global Adland there. And everyone is exceedingly drunk and buying these huge bottles of Jeroboam's of rosé, which cost hundreds of euros. And the staff bring them out with these huge lit sparklers coming out of the ice buckets. And it's this juxtaposition of this high-end setting mixed with this naff pantomime that you'd have enjoyed age 18 on your holiday to Falaraki with your mates. It just makes me laugh every time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, obviously, um, you know, there's lots of serious things happening. And we talked about it earlier um, today. And someone was saying it's really interesting to see how many people get new jobs, say, three months after Can, because they've obviously mm. been speaking to people um, during the week. You've also got a lot of the creatives do genuinely go down and look at all the work you know if they're not judging they go down to the basement and look round and kind of are inspired looking through everything um you've got the pop stars and the actresses and actors on the main stage as well um you know there's lots of serious work done alongside the silliness oh yeah I've had some great interviews there actually and seen some really interesting sessions so yes Definitely a serious thing as well. <laughs> so um, UK agencies did well this year. Um, Abbott Mead Vickers BBDO was crowned Global Agency of the Festival thanks to its awards hall, which was five Grand Prix, five golds, nine silver and eight bronze lions. Sort of mainly on the strength of its Womb Stories campaign for Body Form and Labrasse that won the top prizes in film, film craft, titanium and health and wellness categories. Other key winners included Burger King as the most creative marketer, WPP as the most awarded holding company and FCB as the network of the year. And I think um, PhD was the most awarded media agency in the media track as well. Perfect. So a couple of things to discuss. Um, what do you think of AMV's win, Maisie? Well, I mean, it's really great for them. They must be so pleased, obviously. Probably quite sad that they're not all together celebrating 
the work that AMV has done for um, ST has been great and it's a strength we talked about on the podcast before it's a testimony to the the relationship between the marketers and the agency and how they've kind of grown and developed that brand's work together I think um, AMV's obviously got a new chief exec um, last week which is quite exciting so they've been an interesting place where they have excelled creatively particularly on certain brands um, but lost quite a few clients so if they can marry Sam Hawkey's kind of commercial nows that he's learned at Sarchi's with their creative excellence then they, they might go in, you know into a really interesting place I think. Mm, that'd be great and I think that the creative chief Alex Grieve said that the strength of the womb stories sort of relied on the great relationship it's got with its client and the fact that they are allowing them the agency to push the creative boundaries and just shows how important it is um, to create great work for them to have the good agency client relationship. I mean I remember when the ad came out I think it was when I was on maternity leave so it sort of struck quite home there are lots of different vignettes of women's relationships with their wombs from the you know relieved woman who's not pregnant uh to you know the the heartbreaking pain of of losing a, a pregnancy so it was a yeah it's a really striking piece of work definitely and the second point that we noticed as a team was the lack of funny ads winning that's um, all the jokes <laughs> exactly what's happened no humor left the the, the main kind of funny ad that seemed to win all the awards was Cheeto's ad. And this was an ad by Goodby, Silverstein and Partners. It won the Creative Strategy Grand Prix. And it was this Cheeto's popcorn. Can't touch this Cheeto's. And it had um, a 2020 Super Bowl spot bringing back MC Hammer. He sings his famous song, Can't Touch This, as a man avoids lending a helping hand in a variety of scenarios due to his fingers being covered in Cheeto dust. Cheetos has popcorn now? Hey, I'm going to need you to... Never mind. You can't touch this. Help. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. I trust you. Why do you think that funny ads are not doing better at Cannes? I think it's quite difficult. There are some really good funny ads last year, sort of thinking of um, some of the Droga 5 work. So, um, set up was obviously great um you know figured quite highly in our list of tv ads and also the amazon ad they did with ellen um but i mean speaking to creative directors this week who were involved or not involved they were saying actually it's quite difficult particularly after a year where a lot of the work has had to be quite serious and have a kind of solemn nature to judge a funny irreverent ad next to something that has a, a broader purpose or is uh, linked to COVID is quite hard because the two things sat alongside each other it's quite easy to assume that the funny thing is easier maybe yeah. um, and when actually you know as we know like we all know from consumers like comedy is really hard really hard to do well um so I think the one of the persons that I spoke to said that actually what happens particularly with international awards is that it's slapstick comedy that translates across nations and across language barriers mm-hmm. and the more nuanced national comedic campaigns don't always um you know have the same impact that that would make sense in this Cheetos example because it's a kind of a physical comedy isn't it but um yeah you're right a lot of comedy is about context and if you don't share have a shared context then you can't 
you know, appreciate necessarily the humour. And I think there's also, you know, as you said, point out, there's a general lack of appreciation about the skill involved in creating something funny. You know, you've got to have great writing and then a client who shares your sense of humour to actually get it made. Yeah, can sell it upwards as well, you know, yeah. to their board. Exactly. But it is a shame because as the planner Paul Felbick said, you know, funny ads can be very effective. You know, they're memorable. People, it breaks through, it kind of, you know, bonds you with people. So maybe it's time to bring humour back. On the subject of humour, I was excited to interview the writer and performer John Cleese of Monty Python and Faulty Towers fame. When I was doing my introduction to the podcast, I got halfway through and realised I'd forgotten to record it. So John and I had a bit of a laugh about that and he decided to count me in the next time round. So you can listen to that at the start for the amusement factor. Listen out also for the beautiful Caribbean bird song that is I wasn't aware of at the time, but is there now. So thanks for joining us, Maisie. Mm, thanks for having me. And now for something completely different. It doesn't matter, you silly woman. It doesn't matter. We're just having fun and giggling, and that's what people like to watch. And I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of people do make mistakes all the time. (laughs) Me in particular. So don't worry about that. Going in five seconds. Four, three, two, one, action. (laughs) John needs little introduction. He's an actor, comedian, screenwriter and producer who first shot to fame with The Frost Report in 1966. He co-founded Monty Python's Flying Circus, which conquered the world with four cult TV series and four hugely successful films. He wrote and starred in Faulty Towers, one of the most successful TV series ever made, and the film A Fish Called Wonder. He is also an author of four books. His latest is called Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide. So thanks for joining us, John. Your book explores how you can kind of create the conditions to be creative. And I think advertising creatives will love your book because it reinforces the importance of space and time and relaxation to have great ideas um, and the importance of play. Um, And I particularly love the example you gave about the different way that architects that are creative and not so creative structure their, their time and their days. I wonder if you can explain that for us yes it was when i first got interested in creativity because it was 22 before i discussed i had any creative powers at all before i discovered it um because i'd done uh, i got into cambridge on uh, on science and then i started reading law and these are very left hemisphere subjects and then i suddenly discovered i could make people laugh so um, I think what uh, when I get, began to get interest, I was lucky enough to make acquaintance with a guy called Brian Bates, who was a professor of psychology at uh, at uh, Brighton or, or Sussex, Sussex, I think it's called. And he said to me, "You must read this uh, r- r- research that was done by a guy called Donald McKinnon at Berkeley in." Uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, when there was a lot of interest in creativity. And then it kind of died away because for reasons we'll talk about, people couldn't find out much more about it. It was like they sort of hit the wall. And what McKinnon did, he was interested more in professional creativity than in creative artist creativity. And he focused on engineers, believe it or not, and uh, journalists. And then particularly interested in architects because they have to be able to design buildings that stay up as well as buildings that 
um, you know, look nice. And that, he, he was fascinated by the combination of the creativity and the practicality. And so he asked all the architects that he could contact, who are the most creative architects? He got a few names and he went to those people and he said, tell me what you do from the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you go to bed at night. And then he contacted a lot of the others. So he didn't tell them he was talking to them because they weren't creative. And he asked them the same question. What do you do all day? And when he analyzed it, he discovered that there were only two differences between the creatives and the non-creatives, just two. And it was nothing to do with IQ. It's nothing to do with intelligence. And some of the most clever, intelligent, analytical, brilliant intellectual people aren't creative at all. Now, why? When the answer is because he discovered that the creative architects knew how to play. And that's playing like kids play without any sense of time and not really quite knowing what you're going to find out mm -hmm. and just playing and see where that takes you. And sometimes it doesn't take you anywhere and other times it does. The second thing he found was, which is very interesting, I think, is that they took as long to uh, make a decision as they could. Now, notice People say, oh, that's indecisive, isn't it? No. When you have to take a decision, and I learned this when I was making the video arts management training films, the most important single thing you ever must ask yourself is, when does this decision have to be taken? When? And that's when you take it. So it's a real world decision. Might be next Tuesday, might be November. Mm -hmm. So you figure out when you have to take it, you take it there, but you don't take it before that because you might get new information and hopefully you may get new ideas. So people who rush a decision trying to look as though they are uh, being decisive are actually cowards because they can't maintain a sort of interested, skeptical frame of mind without making the decision. And that's what uh, creative people can do. They can live with and tolerate the slight discomfort that we all have when something's up in the air and hasn't been decided yet. You see what I mean? And yeah, the, the relaxation is a large part of that because anxious people always want certainty. So those are the two things. You've got to be able to play, and then you've got to be able to uh, to not take decisions until you have to. And that's a real-world deci uh, decision, and you respect it, but you don't take the decision until then. So coming back to play, the next thing I, I found, a book called Homo Ludens, Latin for playing man. And I don't know why I found it, but I did. And the key idea there was that play has to be separate from ordinary life. And this is because ordinary life is full of everyday responsibilities. They may be trivial, but they've got to be dealt with. You know, just ordinary uh, adult stuff, making arrangements and making sure that you bought the birthday present for the cat and that the kids are, you know, all that stuff. You've got to get away from that. And the only way you can get away from it is by getting away from it. So you have to create 
what I call sometimes a tortoise enclosure, because there's also a wonderful book called Hairbrain Tortoise Mind about the difference between fast thinking and slow thinking. And uh, you've got to create a space where you get away from everyday life. And that means you have to create boundaries of space so that people can't interrupt you. So you, if you're at the top of the organization, you say to your PA, nobody to, to interrupt me unless the building's on fire. Four, and then you have to make a specific amount of time because if you leave it vague, then real life will start infiltrating it and distracting you because what stops you from being creative is interruptions and distractions. And not just people coming through the door, but things as subtle as worries that you're not good enough to do this. You see what I mean? Or time pressures. The moment that you start thinking, oh, I've got to decide this by such and such a time, you stop thinking about the best decision and you think about the best decision you can come at in that come up with in that limited amount of time. Yeah. So you create boundaries of space and boundaries of time. And in Hobo Ludes, the guy actually said it's a bit like a football match. Suddenly the referee blows a whistle and then a whole lot of new rules take over. You say nothing to do with ordinary life mm -hmm. and no one's allowed onto the pitch. Boundaries of space. And then at the end, the referee blows his whistle and that all finishes and you go back to ordinary life again. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, the, that's the space. Now, when you create the space, then you're into other problems of a more subtle kind, because anyone who's meditated knows that the moment you stop to meditate, you think, oh, I should have called her and I haven't bought the cat's birthday present. And I wonder where we're going to take the grandchildren on Thursday. Well, that probably doesn't bother most of your people. But in other words, your mind fills up we're trivia and he's exactly like meditation like the buddhists say the, the glass of cloudy water you just sit there and eventually the cloudiness sinks and you begin to get some clarity and the little interruptive thoughts disappear or go quieter and then you can begin to think about the particular problem that you're trying to solve and you just think about it in a playful way like kids playing there are no rules you can't say to small kids you're not playing right <laughs> You don't yeah. have to say to children, hey, do you want us to show you how to play? They know. <laughs> and the problem is we lose that ability to play because as we get an adult, as we become more adult, we have people that we have to, to, to look after. Whereas when you're a child, it's all being taken care of. You know, mums, or to be very traditional, mums getting dinner ready. I don't have to worry about that. It'll be on the table. That's why they can play. The moment that you get into adult responsibilities, then you can't play because you're being distracted by all the real world problems. But the whole thing is that anything is possible. When you're being creative, there's no such thing as a mistake. 
because even if you made a mistake, you might lead you on to something. Or if you're working with someone, uh, he or she will say something that you misunderstand, but you build on that misunderstanding. So uh, nothing is, is, is wrong and nothing's right. It's all just, they're all possibilities. And the moment you start worrying, time pressure, I'm not good enough, all this kind of thing, I'll never get this finished on time. The moment that happens, you tighten up. And when you tighten up, your mind goes back to stereotypical thoughts. Um, I want to pick up on the theme of speed. I think that's a big part of your book as well. Um, and you know, say the importance of letting your unconscious mind work on a problem. Um, yeah. And you even you know, the old fashioned thing to sleep on it. And I think in um, Adland, they had yes. the overnight test. So you'd leave your ideas, come back the next day and throw half them out. But you had more clarity of what was good. Um, and I think there's a problem in Adland. And this is probably true of the creative industries in general and you know maybe the general world but that everything seems to have got too fast you know i feel we put the kind of productivity on a pedestal and we have this kind of cult of busyness you know you can't have a hobby anymore it's got to be a side hustle and things aren't worth it or valuable unless you can monetize it and i just think why do you think that's a problem for creativity because it's hugely limiting i mean you see the real but creativity is the people in charge because if anyone doesn't understand uh, creativity and they say you, you see you just sitting there at your desk thinking they're going to think why isn't he working mm-hmm. yeah there was a great story about sam goldwin of metro goldwin man that he was uh, you know brilliant in his own way very driven very much into money although he wanted to make good films for prestige sake he didn't understand creativity at all and he always suspected that the workers the, sorry that the writers weren't working properly so once a day he would make a visit to this little building where all the writers were with their little offices and it's quite a good joke because it was known as the writer's block which is quite <laughs> clever And so they used to post some young fellow on the balcony. And when he saw Sam in the distance approaching, he'd shout and everyone would pull the piece of paper out of their typewriter, put another piece of paper in and just type any old rubbish madly fast, as loudly as possible. (laughs) Sam would hear the clacking of the keys and think, oh, good, they're working hard, and he'd go away. And then they'd take the sheets out of the typewriter, scrumple them up, throw them in the wastepaper basket, and go back to doing the real work, which was thinking. And if you've got someone in charge who doesn't understand that, and particularly if if they're people of a nervous and controlling disposition, they're not going to like the idea of creativity because on any given day, you can't guarantee that you come up with something and that seems inefficient. Do you see what I mean? So you time and time again, you meet people, they take film executives, what do they do? They like your idea for a film um, and uh, they immediately say, well, could we see a, a treatment in four weeks? So have it, you know, and, and, and I say, uh, well, yeah, it's going to be a very stereotypical treatment because I don't have time to play and come up with something original. But if you want something more sort of derivative and hackneyed and secondhand, I can very happily do that for this money. It's going to be very easy. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So they've got to say, you know, when somebody says, well, we, we you know, we, 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 want, we want your we want your work. We want to know what you're going to do. And I say, I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. 
Now, either you trust me to come up with something good or you don't. And if you don't trust me, why are you employing me anyway? But the tr what people don't understand is that when people are nervous and they're in control, then they want to control everything. Mm -hmm. The response to being anxious is to want to control things. And that's why people with a, who are a bit scatty who have a lot to do and very anxious, they get up in the morning and they just start doing things, but they don't do things in the right order because they don't have time to think what order to put it in. They just start doing things because every time they do something, whether it's important or not important, it makes them feel slightly better because they've actually done something. Do you see what I mean? Whereas what matters is doing important things. And I often think that intelligence can be defined as knowing the difference between what matters and what doesn't. <laughs> I love that. It's really good. I also think that perhaps if you're not particularly creative, you may feel more comfortable with a stereotypical idea because you've seen it before and you recognize it. And yes, you're not going to get fired for backing this idea that's sort of average, normal. You've seen it before. Everyone's going to agree with it. Whereas to back something that's kind of out there you're not sure yeah. that's going to be good or bad or how's that going to be received i think it's more probably more frightening for people you see the bbc in the old days the people who were in charge of departments were nearly all people who had spent 20 or 30 years making programs mm -hmm. and that worked pretty well i knew a lot of those people there were one or two people that were completely hopeless but most of them had a pretty good idea because if you start as a floor manager working with Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett for five years on different series, you learn a lot from mm -hmm. watching them. Now they get rid of these people who've actually can make programs and replace them with a whole new category of people called commissioning editors who've never done anything except commission things. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that's going to work is insane. But it's been put into uh, operation by executives who have no idea what they're doing. Because if you've got executives at the BBC, they should be thinking, can we make interesting programs and not, can we make this place as efficient as possible? Mm -hmm. I think that's always interesting, isn't it, in a creative industry? You would imagine that the people at the top would be the creatives. And yeah. in fact, it's never that, it's usually numbers people. And they're normally the ones that are kind of getting the most money and they're in charge of everything else. And I think in Nudge.Rory, Sutherland made a really interesting point about the asymmetry of that, that you know, creative people's ideas have to go and be um, approved by the numbers people, but never in reverse. That's <laughs> <laughs> actually right. And of course it's insane. Yeah. It is quite simply insane, but that's the way that it is. And so people think it has to be that way because the people in control are always the people with money. Mm -hmm. And just because you've got a lot of money, it doesn't mean you know which uh, screenplay is good or not. Or no. in advertising, which is the campaign that is actually going to catch people's fancy because it's not like all the others. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Creativity. You mentioned a lot about child. It's like child's play, um, and I wonder as well if the whole world is set up so you know the children play in the corner. Those are the creatives, and the parents are the ones that are actually there, handling the real things and handling the responsibilities. And it's the kind of you know the, the, the children have to be properly managed. But they know how to play, kids, yeah. and then we take it out of them. And one of the reasons is that we get worried about making mistakes. 
Yeah. And I give you an example. I, as I said to you at the start, I had no uh, inkling that I was at all creative. And when I was about 15, I had to write an essay about time. And I thought about it. Oh, this is really difficult saying, what is time? And so I wrote an essay that was completely about the fact that I hadn't had the time to write the essay. You see? <laughs> now, most people smile or giggle at that. Well, guess what the English teacher said? He wasn't mean. He just said, this isn't a proper essay. <laughs> and if somebody says, oh, no, this isn't what it's about, then you keep putting all stuff that you might want to be able to do, put it aside because it's sort of wrong or not relevant or not the proper thing. And that's a slowly, not cruelly by and large, but slowly the creativity just gets pushed away. And there was a guy who used to go into schools to talk about creativity. And if he said to the boys and girls, uh, how many of you are creative? If there were six-year-olds, they'd all put their hand up. Ten-year-olds, about half of them would put their hands up. And by the time he asked 16-year-olds, they were looking around the classroom to see who this oddity was. Oh, how interesting. That's really depressing. It is depressing because people are very, very easily um, made uncomfortable. If anyone is interested, read the experiments carried out probably in the 60s by a guy called American called Solomon Ash, A-S-C-H. It just showed that people want to conform even when there are no unpleasant circumstances if they don't. Well, that's really interesting. And that's because we just mentioned a minute ago about Sir Ken Robinson, the sort of educationist, and he he gave me a quote. I interviewed him a few years ago, and he, his quote was, "If the dominant culture penalises you for formally or informally for de deviating from the norm, then you'll pick that message up quite quickly." It's also because people tend to think that the critical, analytical, highly verbal mind is superior to the gentler, more intuitive, more playful mind. I mean, when I was at Cambridge, and if I said, oh, I, I enjoyed that movie, and people said, oh, you, you liked it, did you? They, they felt superior. I felt inferior. The simple reason they'd not like something that I had. And we're, you, we have to fight against that. <laughs> you know, you'll see there's more intelligent if you're critical of something. So when I'm trying to talk about creativity it's more a job of persuasion than of giving people information and when people try this stuff they find actually i always knew this because mm -hmm. it's about how human beings actually work mm -hmm. and the tragedy for me is the most extraordinary thing is for example you know obviously i am considered fairly creative not musically, or, and I can't, terrible at dancing, but at least with words and to some extent with images, I'm quite creative. Um, and yet, uh, and I produce a book which is, takes less than an hour to read. And you would have thought that somebody who's done, you know, uh, Fawlty Towers and Monty Python and Wanda, would, his views on creativity would be of interest. Not a single English newspaper has mentioned the book except for the Financial Times, who gave it two lines, approving it. 
But why would English newspapers not be interested in someone who's quite used to chatting in public about a subject of enormous importance? And the answer is, I have absolutely no idea, except, of course, I criticize the British press. And of course, if they if you do that, they tend to ostracize you. And the other thing that's depressed me is how little I've heard from people in education. Most of the people who are interested in this are in some form of business because business people are practical and they know you've got to improve. They know that you've got to innovate or else you'll be overtaken. So they're open, very open to these ideas. But why haven't I had a single uh, invitation from the Open University who gave me an honorary degree? And why haven't I had a single invitation to talk about this to educators and say, couldn't we get one or two of these books in very cheap versions into schools so that kids could understand what playing is, even if the teachers don't want them to know? And I, I sometimes wonder, is it the teachers thinking if the kids are going to get too creative, I'll lose control? Because I can't think of any other reason. Uh, perhaps it's this myth that creativity is an innate talent. Um, and that you can't teach it. It could be. That's right. Well, it's that. untrue. I mean, you can't make completely un uncreative people very creative, but you can make everyone a bit more creative. And some people who didn't know they were creative can become hugely creative. We confuse in our uh, in our minds, the sort of expertise that goes on in the left hemisphere, which is all about analysis and so forth, and the sort of expertise that goes on in the right hemisphere, which is much more to do with context and bringing things together and making meaning. And we think that one form of, well, the, the greatest book I've ever read, which is called uh, the Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist says he thinks that since the uh, uh, Enlightenment there's been a heavy concentration on left brain thinking with the same sort of feeling we were talking about when I was a student at Cambridge. Oh, you liked it, did you? You know that somehow being analytical and passing judgments is more important than being able to do the work in the first place. Mm, how interesting. I suppose you had periods, things like the romantics, the romantic writers. and Well, that was a rea reaction against it, but I don't think they won. And when I tell you that in all the years I was at school and a good English education, you know, um, I nobody ever said to me, you have a creative streak. Nobody ever told us how to be creative or how to play. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So let's talk a bit about because your book talks very much about individual creativity, um, but obviously your career you were kind of collaborative a lot of the time, and I guess in Adland lots of the kind of creatives are teamed up in pairs. You know, do you have any advice on on how you navigate that? The key thing is if you want if you want a creative group, you have to have diversity. Mm -hmm. If they're all as they used to be, middle class, middle aged whites then they will always report afterwards it's been a very good experience we thoroughly enjoyed it we'd love to do it again they come up with fuck all <laughs> if you have a diverse group with a whole lot of people putting in different sorts of opinions then that's the way you get creativity the problem is the diversity can bring social disagreement mm -hmm. and that immediately interrupts the creativity
So you want a conflict of ideas. You don't want conflict of individuals. So the guy in charge or the woman in charge has got to be very good about stopping people who are too dominant, who are sure they're right. They have to be very good about encouraging the quieter people to give their opinion and making sure they're not interrupted when they are. So that the person in charge has got to understand the creative process, and a lot of them don't. And then they have to understand, think about creatives, which is oddly enough, they're not as keen on money as anyone else, everyone else, but they're very keen on recognition. I was going to ask you this point actually about um, awards because in, in advertising, you know, the awards are there's a lot of them. People care about them a lot, um, and then there's also been a bit of a backlash because there's it's kind of almost creating this scam work, you know, putting work, you know, work winning awards that never actually ran or it didn't actually meet the client's expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But you, I think I read that you've only ever won one award your work is that right there was a time when i was very popular with the advertising fraternity but it was it was probably 40 years ago and at that time somebody said there should be award for the best use of john cleese in a commercial (laughs) (laughs) and i did stuff with tim delaney for example for for sony and i had some lovely times and um, i i loved it and then you see, they don't want older people doing ads because older people have made up what made up their mind what brands they like. So that's why they think it's important to appeal to young people who are still making up their mind. You can get them on your side, whereas old people say, oh, I know which I like. So since then, I've done very few. But what I used to do, which I liked, was I just I did a sort of meta comment and I used to say things like, now, Sony paid me lots of money to tell you. <laughs> People like that because there's a fundamental honesty about it. But I always loved doing commercials because it was like, it was not a massive thing, like a movie, but it was like a very good crossword. Do you see what I mean? It takes two days of your life, but it's awfully interesting. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You, you brought up age there. Um, you've had a really successful long career as a creative. Um, and I think in advertising, it, it has a bit of an ageism problem. And, you know, the, the average age of people working in the industry is sort of in their 30s. The so- lovely thing about young people is they're cheap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is yeah. very attractive to people yeah. of agencies who don't understand creativity. <laughs> but people are always saying to me, there's an exciting young director you must work with. And I always want to say to them, well... I don't particularly want an exciting young director. I want a slightly boring old director who knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, when we made Fish Call Wanda, Charlie Crichton was 77 during the shoot, and yeah. he knew what he was doing. Yeah. And we used to finish at six every, every day because he knew what he wanted to shoot, and he would shoot that, and then we were finished. Whereas most directors don't really know. They're going to make the film in the cutting room because they don't have the experience to know how to make it on the floor. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think experience is normally respected in most other industries, like 
you're a law firm, they would be more valued and more respected the more experience you have. And yet it seems to be the reverse in kind of... I think the key is very simply this, that people who tend to rise to the top of organizations don't tend to be very creative. They tend to be power brokers. They know how to get to the top of organizations. There are some people who are very good at getting to the top of organizations without ever having done anything pretty well. If you give people a big desk, then they tend to think that you've been vouchsafed skills and understandings that it takes the rest of us 25 years to attain. I remember a woman at Disney saying, telling me what changes she wanted in the script. And I thought anywhere else in the world, nobody would listen to her. They would listen to me because I can do it. I have done it three or four times very well. Lots of misses and mistakes, but I have done it very well three or four times. No, she knew more about it than I did. She said, never written a fucking script in her life. <laughs> And she asked me to make these changes. And I said, I don't think I can do this. And she said, you know, well, why not? I said, because I don't know how to make the script worse. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I would be trying to make it better. And you're not interested in that. <laughs> Needless to say, <laughs> the script was never made. And now it's in the vaults. They think they know. <laughs> I want to say I spent my life in front of audiences, writing stuff, making audiences laugh. Why do you think you understand it better than I do? When you're flying, do you send suggestions up to the pilot? Do you write? <laughs> <laughs> I think you should be dropping 300 feet. <laughs> Why do they think they know? And the answer is uh, it's incomprehensible. <laughs> Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about ego and self-doubt and creativity. Yeah. One thing I was really struck about in your book is that you said you often felt the fear when you were faced with a difficult problem. And I think you're quite... I think everybody does. Yeah, we all, we're all much more insecure than we're prepared to admit. And yeah. a lot of the time we think, oh dear, I'm not good enough or I'm getting, you know, you can see people playing in test matches for the first time, you know, oh God, I dropped a catch. I'll never work again. That sort of thing. We're all very, very liable to have those feelings. But the, the longer you do it, the more you get over it. I mean, Chapman and I used to worry a lot at the beginning of Python. We'd have a day when we wouldn't write much and we'd think, oh shit, you know, why it didn't work today. And then after time, we began to realize there were good days and they were bad days and it was all part of the same process but we could average about 17 minutes of good material a week you know maybe three 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 and a half minutes a day average but one day one minute the next day seven minutes and once you realize that there's an average and then somebody said to me well you have to you have to get rid of an old idea before you can have a new one then you see that the pure is when it's not happening maybe you're just clearing clearing the floor for something else to come in if you see that then you stop worrying about it you don't think i'm no good you just think this is part of the writing process i love that bit about the fork when you're eating about putting the fork yes, that's right. that's well what i say what i 
say, I'm glad you like that, is that when you're eating, you don't think that the good bit is when the fork is bringing the food towards your mouth and everything after that's a waste of time because it's going by empty. <laughs> Let's cut that bit yeah. out of the process. I love that, that they're kind of, yeah, the down days are just waiting for the next next mouthful. <laughs> yeah. That's a really nice... If you just sit there, I mean, uh, the, Galton and Simpson, who were a wonderful pair of writers, they got stuck, they used to play board games. Yeah. <laughs> and Hitchcock, who used to work with an actor called Hume Cronin, he co-wrote four movies with him. He, Cronin said that sometimes Hitchcock would say we're stuck because we're pushing too hard mm -hmm. yeah let's stop trying hard because yeah. trying hard is not actually what this is about and the result of this is that um there's a subtitle to that book i mentioned about uh, uh harebrained tortoise mind fast thinking against slowing it says why thinking gets easier when you don't think so hard and i now because i create plenty of time for things i sometimes suddenly think i don't want to do that this week i don't want to write that this week i want to write that this week mm -hmm. and i can afford to do that most mm -hmm. people can't so i go to the thing i want to write and the start starts coming quite easily because my unconscious is saying we want to write that yeah, you can't just beat yourself up to try and do it. <laughs> you don't don't try too hard. I now find writing is easier than I've ever uh, done it. And I've just written a light comedy about cannibalism, which I think is one of the funniest things I've ever written. And it just came so easily. Has your approach to creativity changed over your career? Because I think you've been on... Yes, enormously, because I was educated in the English system and I thought it was all about furrowing your brow and trying awfully hard and, and sort of cudgeling your brains. And now I think it's about, oh, hmm, I'll take a 10-minute break because you don't waste energy on all the negative thoughts about yourself you just take a break and can come back to the problem again and more you take breaks i think the more the creativity flows so that's it for this week Thanks for listening to the campaign podcast and thanks to John Cleese for joining me. This episode was edited by Lindsay Riley and you can read news and analysis by Campaign Magazine at campaignlive.co.uk. If you're a first time listener, please subscribe and leave a review. So goodbye and hope you can join us again next week. <laughs>